Warning. What you're about to listen to contains spoilers for season one and two of Insatiable. So if you haven't watched those, go binge them, come back here, and we'll help you digest it. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for all of your responses and feedback on our Instagram page and on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us keep doing it. So thank you for that. So to round out the conversations that we're having with people from Insatiable about Insatiable, today we have Erin Westbrook. You might know her from Glee or Awkward or The Resident on Fox, but you definitely know her as Magnolia on Insatiable. I know her as a great spa night host, a thoughtful actress, a Harvard grad, and also this is her first podcast, but she's a pretty incredible conversationalist and I cannot wait for you guys to hear what she has to say. So here is Erin Westbrook. I am grateful for my husband, Andrew. I'm grateful for an incredible, positive support group around me of family and close friends. I feel really lucky and blessed to have that. I'm grateful for opportunity. I'm grateful to have a voice that can hopefully inspire and evoke positive change. Today we're sitting with Erin Westbrook. Hey, Um, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so, I'm so happy you're here. You've been busy. We've been so, I mean, such is our friendship. It's very hard to get us in a room together. Like, it's literally like we're in town for the same time, like for what, 24 hours at this point? The overlap is slight. In there. That's how you know we're really trying to be here. (laughs) So you kind of are no stranger to going back and forth. Right. You've been traveling and wandering. Yeah. But in general, your life is divided. You're bi-coastal, right? Bi-coastal between New York and St. Louis is where I'm from, but New York and LA. But home is St. Louis. So it's It's like in the, like and... literally like the middle of those two cities, which is interesting. You know, it's like my home base. But yeah, it's been intense, but I'm making it work. So when you booked Insatiable, mm-hmm. were you, obviously you had done TV before, you had kind of had experience in this world, but this was the most uprooted. Were your other shows that you had shot, shot in LA? Actually, Yeah. Glee was shot here in LA. Awkward was here in LA. I'd done some guest stars like in Vancouver and Chicago, but had never been based elsewhere for like a long period of time. And it was a long period of time. It was a long period of time, right? Wasn't that like five or, was it five months? Yeah. It was like, when it got picked up. Yeah. It it was five or six. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, that was weird because I felt like I was just out of my element for longer than I was used, you know? Yeah. It was just like, we did all have to do the things of like finding our spots yeah. and finding like the area, areas where we felt most comfortable and like had to find our crew. It was, you know, in New York and in LA, I have people, I have family, I have a lot of really good friends. So you feel at home, but you know, it, it, we sort of all started again when we got to Atlanta. I felt a sense of resentment initially when they were like, it's going to be Atlanta. I was like, I have to live there for five months. Like, no shade on Atlanta. I had worked there before, but I was like, yeah. this isn't my people. This yeah. isn't where my pillows are. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> my I pillows. just, well, you know, Listen, like. Got to get those pillows like, now. Where do your towels live? Where do your pillows live? <laughs> Candles. Like, yes. All sorts of things. Um, Your winter coats. But then I realized actually the beauty, which I think that we discovered together, which is like when you are in a place existing for a thing, it mm-hmm. forces you to only be focused on that. And we did kind of create this family. That's true. And it did like when I'm in Atlanta, I do feel like I'm being productive 
I'm focused and focused on my one job that I'm there for. And then you, like you said, you build a family with the people who are working with you. So it is nice to feel like you are in one spot for a second. Yeah. Because when you're not working on one particular project, it's easy to be like, well, I have to go over here and here and I have to do this and that and this. But like when we were down there shooting Insatiable, it's like we're here to shoot Insatiable. Yeah. And everything that you're not doing that's not shooting kind of points back to the work. It's yeah. 100%. Studying the script. It's 100%. maintaining your skin. It's, it's all of those things. Are like working out. Girl and dates. Girl dates, which self-care Sunday. We only ended up doing one of those, by the way. You killed it. Aaron hosted the best <laughs> self-care Sunday. It was so, so like, good. No one else was going to try and do that afterwards. No, we were like, there's no I way. I got really you into it. do it. I mean, you killed but it. But I was like, ooh, okay. Somebody, I think it was you, actually. I think you were like, I'll do the next one. Somebody offered. Didn't have you. So everybody was like, I'll host, I'll host. And then like, it never happened again. But Dude, we, it was towards the end. If we get a we season, if out. we get a season three, we need to like make that, like we have to commit to self-care Sundays, like once every other week yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will only be good. Yeah. But yeah. So season one, we went in blindly, kind of didn't know the crew. We also didn't know, um, something that I've been explaining to friends of the podcast mm-hmm. is what we know, but I think a lot of people are surprised by, which is that when you sign on to do a TV show, all yeah. you have is the first script. That's so all we have get. no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what you're signing. You sign a contract and you say, well, I guess they could take it anywhere. A hundred percent. So as it evolved, did you have any predictions when you originally signed on and you met Magnolia? Did you have any predictions for where it would go? Honestly, I had zero clue where it was going to go, but I'm excited where it has gone. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I'm excited to be on this journey with Magnolia and in her shoes and living these moments with her. Um, it's It was like, these roles are the most amazing like puzzles, right? It's like each script comes out and you have like another piece and you're like, ah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So by the time now we've gotten to season two, I feel like I know her a little bit better and I feel like things weren't, even though I didn't have like the full arc, things weren't as unexpected. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, Ah, that makes sense, given what she's been through. This makes sense. Whereas for the first season, and you, you're, everything is so new. You don't have as but, much context but for But then it. the next season, you're here, here we are, and then you're like, okay, well, I have, you know, I have her history. I have 12 episodes. Well, now you are the only person who has Patty's secret. I mean, you are one of three people. You are the only person who's True. not her best friend or her family. And you're holding it. And I have had heard a lot of people after season two say like the Magnolia moment on stage was my favorite thing. People were excited. And it was funny because people were like, oh, I'm so proud of Magnolia for not like essentially throwing Patty under the bus. But it's like, I knew she wouldn't. Like, people were like, were you surprised that, like, like when you learned that Magnolia wouldn't, like, tell, like, Patty's secret? I'm like, no, I'm not. I wasn't surprised, actually, because I knew—I mean, I know this girl at this point, so it's like, she has a big heart. She cares about people fiercely. She's fiercely committed to friendships. And even though Patty and her don't have—like, they have a very complicated history, I think she still considers her a friend, especially when she has the realization she remembers while she's in this trunk— that Patty saved her life. Mm-hmm. So, of course, now Patty is invited into Magnolia's inner circle. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I got you. Yeah. Magnolia and that's Pat- inner circle. Listen, Magnolia might have gotten that crown. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> Magnolia doesn't play with those crowns. So Magnolia <laughs> has crowns on crowns on crowns, trophies on trophies on trophies. <laughs> so she had that moment and she chose to be loyal to a friend and loyal to somebody who she felt like was in her corner. Because in so, the same way that if the crown was like her life or her motivation, yeah, yeah. 
then Patty, you know, Magnolia probably doesn't know the extent to which Patty likes it. That's the thing. So Magnolia is just like, Does wow, she like she it though? Does she really? I don't know. I think like, Patty likes it. You think it. she likes it? I think Patty likes it. Because I'm like, no, girl, you don't like this. No, that's, but trust I, me, I try to that say That last it. little moment on like season two where you have, you when you go to visit Bob, you do have that little like glimmer in your eyes when you're talking about it. And you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> she likes oh, it. Oh, shoot. Maybe I do like it. She likes but it. But you're right. Magnolia, if she does in fact like killing. Right. As we surmise she might. I think that Magnolia is completely in the dark about that. I she think- is. And I also think that Patty was, until that moment mm-hmm. that we saw, also mm-hmm. in the dark about it. So truly, she thought she was protecting Magnolia. Mm-hmm. Listen, like, one or two hits mm-hmm. and call the cops would mm-hmm. be protecting Magnolia. Yeah. <laughs> she took yeah. a life. But to your to your point, like, what you saw was her saving Magnolia's yeah. life. And so if Magnolia's life was the crown— her giving that up for the person that presumably saved hers, like that's a bonding moment. A hundred percent. So when you met Magnolia and knew she was going to be a pageant girl, what was okay. your- Okay, yeah, the evolution. Yeah, and also like your experience with pageants. And, you know, I went into it and I was like, well, fortunately, I can be someone who's figuring out pageants because she and I have the exact same level of experience at the beginning, which is none. Mm-hmm. Did you, f- I mean, we went and saw Miss Teen America. Which was- Amazing. And then we went to the Miss Teen America. Wasn't there like a slumber party? Mm-hmm. Which wasn't actually a slumber party. They just called it that. So everybody would show up in their pajamas. But it was, like, it was from like yeah. 8 to 10. Yeah, yeah. With like pizza. It was like, ah, okay. Yeah. But um, we did that, which was really cool because we got to actually have conversations with the girls and like hear from them um, about their experiences. And that for me humanized pageant queens. Because I think we all have these ideas about like who they are and like why, what, they're, doing why they're doing it. And to answer your question, I had no experience with pageants whatsoever. I'd watched the occasional pageant on television because it's interesting and it's fun and the girls look gorgeous. And, you know, I love that Q&A situation. I'm like, oh, let's see. Yeah. Let's see how they're going to handle this. see what we're going to hit them with, yeah. Um, but, it, you know, I had never even known a pageant girl before that time. Like, literally, Miss Teen America was my first time interacting with real pageant queens. And so that was so cool because I was just like, wow— these girls are in it for a variety of reasons. They all have challenges and things that they're going through. They're human. They're yeah. real people. Yeah. And so you behind the perfect smiles and the perfect bodies and the perfect dresses and, you know, the perfect walks and perfect answers to questions, there are real people going through real things who have different motivations and different passions. And so that was very cool. To and to see what they want to shine a light on and them platforms. talking their platforms and like, some of them have been through insane surgeries and overcome such insane things, and they're drawing such beautiful awareness uh, to or that. Or have lost people yeah. to various illnesses and diseases, and, you know, that's why they're raising money for something. Or it, it was a wonderful experience for me to learn through that, like, through them, like, what the world was all about, you know? Which I think is so powerful because Magnolia is someone who has the perfect smile, the perfect yeah. everything. And for you to find humanity in her— that's 100%. what everything hinged on, right? And that's why I think your performance is so beautiful 100%. over both of these seasons is like you found the heartbeat mm-hmm. in this girl that maybe gets written off as just being a perfect facade. A hundred percent. Because how boring would that have been if Magnolia was just this perfect girl with the perfect family, the perfect boyfriend, always winning crowns? It would that's, have been the least realistic sh- thing on our so unrealistic unre- show. It would be so unrealistic. But you know what? Sometimes television throws that at you. They have that character who's just like, 
you're unrealistically perfect, right? And that's just the purpose you serve and it's on the show. Uh, one dimensional. But thankfully, and thanks to Lauren and the writers and you know Andy, it's like all of these people have different things that they're going through, and Magnolia is no exception. So I was very excited, episode after episode, to see her sort of unravel. Yeah. You know, like it was really cool to be like, behind that smile, you're going through things. Let's talk about it. Like, let's let the smile go for a little bit and let's talk about it. And you see that, or that sort of shell cracking ever so slightly with each episode, even through season two until we see like a, a true breakdown. Season one, this girl went through, she overdosed. She went to rehab. Her dad came out of the closet. Yeah. Her mom, Edame, just not distant. Anywhere. Very Hello? distant. Edame, are you there? Like, okay. don't know where she is. And then she, she comes out of rehab, tries to get, you know, a solid footing, has this half-sister. And then she's in the midst of a, she, she almost, I think she overdoses again or she goes to Christian to get the drugs and then boom, she's in a trunk. Yeah. She's been through, this girl's been through a lot. She's been through it, yeah. Uh-huh. So and by the way, like not with not a lot of support system around her. Lonely. Mom, no friends. God, dad, distant, boyfriend, dating someone, like doesn't really have a lot of friends. Nobody no friends. realizes that. I know I'm protective of Magnolia. I'm like, poor thing. But nobody even really realizes that until we address it in season two when she's like, I don't have anybody to call when she's sitting in her bedroom with Bob Barnard. And he's like, oh, I'm worried about you. I, you need to just like turn that. You know, I think she's wa- watching something on her iPad. And he's like, you need to turn that off. I'm leaving for a bit. Do you have a friend that you can... You know, have called to call be with you because you have to be on like your bed rest, but like I want you to have company. And she was like, I literally have nobody. And I was like, This is what I've been thinking the whole time. I'm like, Where are Magnolia's people? Where are her people? She didn't have anybody. And I think the trauma of what she addresses in that moment with her mm-hmm. dad, mm-hmm. which is that she could have had a sister, and she's realizing that. Yeah. She like came to this conclusion and so quickly did not have that relationship have and that then it relationship was taken from her. Taken from her. It will be interesting to see where her journey leads her now that she is loyal to Patty and hopefully Adam May will come back. We don't know, but it it was hard. That was the hardest thing. One of the hardest things was that moment where she's like I don't have anybody and then obviously that connects with what happens in episode 5 Finding Magnolia where she really it's like the culmination of all the things that she's been going through, which is a lot as we've addressed. And then there's just this breakdown or breakthrough, depending on how you look at it. And you're like, dang, she's really been, these are the things that she's been feeling. These are the things that were under the surface, just ready to come out. Right. And I think it's so funny because in that moment, as she's letting people into all of these kind of corners of her journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fortunate that she's letting her new friends into this mm-hmm. because it allows us as the audience and us as the viewer to experience it right. from that kind of fourth wall. Because we're like, oh, we know Magnolia. Oh, we know this girl. We've checked with her journey. Yeah. But like, it is easy to ignore the fact that like her dad's distant, her boyfriend left, like- Her mom's Patty's not around. Yeah, like, and everything, all of these multiple traumas that she's been through. And yeah, I mean, even if every any person was meant to go, like went through one of these things, mm-hmm. like therapizing it thoroughly would be good. And for her to not have had that support system, you don't really realize it until- she says it out loud. I think that's a lot of people just were like blown away by that moment in episode five where she does have this like crazy breakthrough, breakdown. And I think it's like, yeah, everybody was forced to recognize this girl has really been through a lot, guys. Let's not forget all of these things. So so going into season two, mm-hmm. to, like as we have established, no one knows anything about anything ever. ever. And season one, it was very close to the vest. We didn't get ideas of what was going to happen next episode. It was Mm-mm. just what was in front of us. Mm-hmm. 
season two, I think that we went in and people, now that we found our tone and we found our footing and we found our characters. Right. Lauren and the writers and the producers seemed to be a lot more open to letting people know their journeys in advance. But I know like when we stepped into Dixie's journey that they wanted to like have a conversation with Dixie, Mm -hmm. both about like kind of her racial background and her ethnic background, but also the cultural understanding of that being that it's not a thing that she'll be able to identify with because Dixie was not raised as a Korean American around any Korean Americans. Right. She just discovered it at 21 where she thought she was 18 mm-hmm. or whatever. Hilarious. Um, Hilarious moment. So for you, having this conversation with the writer of the episode, mm-hmm. Jess, so did this happen? Right before season two. Yeah, walk us through how okay. season two came about for you. So I didn't know much about Magnolia's arc, but I did know, based on conversations I had with Lauren, that Magnolia was going to be on a little bit of a journey of self-discovery and that there was going to be an episode where she visited a historically black university, which was Hughes, and she was going to have a moment where she sort of confronted her sense of other, right? Otherness, feeling like she doesn't have a place to belong. So I thought it was really lovely and and should be acknowledged that Lauren Gusses and Andy Fleming um, and the writers invited me to the writer's room prior to them writing the episode to hear from me about my sense of otherness, like how I feel as a Black woman from a multiracial background moving through predominantly white environments. And I don't even think they really knew my history. I don't think they knew how I identified. I don't think they knew much about, like, how I grew up. I think they were eager to hear from me, and that's what is so important. They were eager to hear from me as somebody who was closer related to Magnolia playing this character there must be more similarities between Aaron Westbrook and Magnolia Barnard than there are between some of the writers who don't necessarily look like me. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And Magnolia Barnard. Mm-hmm. And so they, I literally went in, I took off my shoes. I like got comfortable mm-hmm. on the couch. I was like, we're going to be here. I brought cupcakes. <laughs> I was like, eat up. We have things to talk about. Everybody just, and that's the thing. They listened. They all just sat there, ate the cupcakes and chilled and listened to me. And Jessica Watson, who was, a fantastic lead writer of this episode who was the only black woman, actually, I think the only black person in the writer's room. And how wonderful that they gave her that title for this episode because they were like, again, her perspective is more in line with Magnolia's perspective of what we think it would be. And so we just sort of ping-ponged back and forth. And then I left them with a document called Finding Aaron. I thought it was so clever. I was like, and this is Finding Aaron about my journey. But... I literally reread that a couple weeks ago to see just how many things they took from that document, personal anecdotes that I listed out, things that happened to me or to members of my family, and just to see what they included. And they included a lot. Like, I'm getting chills thinking about it. That monologue where Magnolia is standing there with her two, you know, hopefully new friends, and she's in the quad, and she's pacing back and forth, and she just tells them about who she is— they think they know her after these couple days of or a couple hours, whatever. And it's like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know what I've been through. And I can relate to you, but I also can't relate to you because I am without a community. And that's something that you have and that I don't. Mm. And in that monologue, the things that I listed, 
that magnolia list. And I, it's hard for me to even separate magnolia and myself at this point because it was so real. It's like I, I listed being followed around high-end stores. That's happened to me. That's something that I shared with the room. Something that I've lived. I shared being pulled over for driving an expensive car. That's happened to my father, okay? It's his car. I have, I shared being singled out during Black History Month. That happens. That happens today where you're literally like the one black person in the classroom and you're talking about black history or you're talking about slavery and everybody uncomfortably, there's no, you know, there's nothing to, they're not trying to do anything offensive, but it's just like subconsciously, they're like, how is she taking this? Sure. How is that one black person in the room taking the fact that this is her history where you're sitting there with your textbooks, just trying to learn. And people are like, oh, looking at you Mm. to feel the burn of people's eyes. You know, so point is, those things that Magnolia said were things that I've lived. And so I actually had emotion, true emotion behind every word. And that was incredible and probably one of, if not the most important moments I've had on a set because I felt heard, I felt seen, I felt um, like my journey was important and relevant. And I knew that it was going to resonate with viewers and it did. So when you, because it was a warm day when we shot that. Yep. And it was a lot of, people and moving bits to cover. And that is because it comes from such a personal wellspring. Yeah. Did you find yourself like, because from like fourth wall perspective, for those of you guys who only saw the edit, I watched Aaron deliver that monologue with sincerity and authenticity every time consistently from every angle. There was no phoning it in. There was no like recounting it. Thanks. yeah. Yeah. And did you just go home and crash? Did you go home and crash? Like, was there a sense of relief? Was there a sense of awareness that if you had seen that as a young woman and seen someone who looked like you express stories that you and your family have gone through, like how much more powerful that can be that you're doing that for people? Yeah. And I feel like for Magnolia, it was cathartic. And also for Aaron, it was cathartic to be like, boom, this has happened. This is happening. This has happened to me. You know, these are things that we need to talk about even in the midst of, you know, confessing struggles and like being super vulnerable, I felt empowered at the same time. So after that, I felt, I felt like, did that. Cool. I felt like, I I was like, I I feel like I did that moment justice. Mm -hmm. There was no other way for me to do it because at the end of the day, like I said, these were moments I've lived and this was something I felt like in the depths of my soul. So there, I couldn't have done it better because I was bringing everything I had, including lifelong memories and experiences to the table. So it's like I gave it my all. And I, I, again, I think that people really appreciated it. I got so many messages. I'm still getting messages about that. And not just from biracial women or black women in predominantly white environments or minorities in predominantly white environments. I've gotten messages from people who just have can relate to feeling like they are the other. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a minority to feel displaced you can feel like you don't have a community no matter who you are. So within the rise of Jordan Peele being able to bring like mm-hmm. satire that's so politically aware and mm-hmm. so mindful and like understandable, like he can kind of spoonful of sugar feed to people who don't understand necessarily mm-hmm. that these are problems and realities for black people every single day. Mm-hmm. Like for him to be able to bring that genre about to people that's like, all right. So important. Maybe you won't come to movies about us, Mm -hmm. but 
let me make a movie that you think is for you Mm -hmm. and we know is for us. And then you will learn while you're in there. Have you noticed a shift in the industry in the last several years in terms of whether it's people making really meaningful art that touches on these things or just roles, you know, you being able to be the lead? I've noticed that. And I actually just wrote a piece about that for the Washington Post, The Lily. I wrote an op-ed about the progress that's been made in Hollywood, but also the fact that there are still, we have a long way to go. There's still a lot of things that we need to do. But I have to acknowledge that there has been progress made. There are more, you know, creators of color. I mean, we have, you know, Shada Rhymes. We have Issa Rae. Mm -hmm. We have Lena Waithe. Mm -hmm. Those are all black females. Then you also have Minnie Ava DuVernay. Yep. Jordan Peele. You have so many. And then you have black people and minorities at the center of their own shows or their own programs. So then you have Mindy Kalig in the Mindy Project. You have Kerry Washington, Scandal. You have Sandra Oh, Killing Eve. I mean, the list goes on. This is a different time, even from like five, 10 years ago. So that's cool. It's cool to be able to turn on the TV and be like, ah, a diverse cast or ah, a female lead of color or ah, a female lead in general. Right. That's all very exciting. That's happening, right? But at the same time, I feel like we still have a little bit of work to do. However, um, to answer your original question, yes, I think that people are telling a variety of stories and, you know, the Jordan Peels and the Issa Rays and the Shonda Rhimes, and they're having such an impact on viewers. And I think they're changing the way people are thinking. Incredible. Which I think is good because you know that someone like any of the people that you listed, because probably up till this point in the industry, yeah. they have experienced so many no's and so many closed doors and so many, sorry, we're only hiring with a resume, but we're not going to be the ones to give you the resume. hundred percent. So they... I think all of those people, Mm -hmm. I have read stories and testimonials about Mm -hmm. them having really fair and balanced intentional hiring practices Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that reflect the stories that are being told and like who they're being told about and making sure that like, you know, to me in my mind, stepping on the set of Insatiable Mm -hmm. to know that there are like the call is coming from inside the house and that there are people who are building structures Mm -hmm. that are passing the mic to people when Mm -hmm. they need to be the ones having the authority. Second season, especially, you know, first season we were, they, Lauren was mindful and and aware um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the the issues that she knew she was going to step into, issues of sexuality, issues of disordered eating, Mm -hmm. issues of body image. And second season, as we begin to explore people's different cultural backgrounds Mm -hmm. and identities, that she wanted to make sure that there was a person to pass every single mic to that could speak from their own experience Mm -hmm. and that she wasn't the one speaking Magnolia's story or Dixie's story. That's so important. I think her acknowledgement of like, hey, let me step back and like you say, pass the mic is important and needs to happen more. I don't know if it happens on every show, but it definitely happens on ours. And so that's, it's meaningful. So as we're there and we have this like whole community of people who have been through the trenches together, Mm -hmm. I mean, listeners of the podcast know that we were a CW show and then we weren't and then we were a Netflix show and then we, you know, and <laughs> the little show we cut that an episode. Could. Like truly we have existed despite it all. <laughs> um, so you are shooting a very serious scene in rehab with Bob. Mm-hmm. And then it was your birthday. Yeah. And we sang and we gave you a cake. Yeah, Debbie spearheaded the whole happy birthday effort, which was <laughs> so nice. Like pulled together a cake. Because I, qui- I had been quiet about my birthday. Only like you, only a couple people knew. And then the moment that you like, were like, wait, it actually is today. 
we like you rallied and got a cake and like led the happy birthday song and it was so special but it loves the celebration yeah it loves the celebration but then you were very quickly you were off for the weekend and off yeah. after that scene yeah. you wrapped your butt was on a plane to Paris Paris so my now husband had planned unbeknownst to me a proposal in one of my favorite cities and it was so last minute too because I think I had like a day, like a day off. And it was also a long weekend. So it ended up being like four, I, I had four days away. I was like, you know, maybe this is like too rushed. Like, do you want to just like come to Atlanta or I'll come to New York and we can just chill and we can plan Paris for like another weekend. He was like, no. He's like, no, it has he's to be like, Paris. You, he's like, it's Paris this weekend. It's your birthday. Like you can do something special. I'm like, we really don't. He's like, no, he was very adamant. About and you going. had no idea. No idea. We had a friend who was like, that's going to happen. He's going to propose to Paris. And you were like, what are you talking I about? I was like, it's not going to happen. I didn't even have my nails done. Most women who know, like, that's the thing. A lot of women know. They know their partner so well, but their partners also know them so well. So mm -hmm. it's like, Andrew knew how to, like, hoodwink me mm -hmm. into thinking that this was, like, an impromptu trip. Like, oh, like, this is an impromptu trip. Let's just go have fun in Paris, see some of your friends who are there, and just, like, enjoy, like, a fun weekend away. When, really, he had planned this proposal. And... Again, I knew that we would be getting married. I knew he was going to propose at some point. But I'm very type A, so I like to be involved in decisions. So he knew the type of, he knew like the stone that I wanted, but he didn't know like the band or any of that. He, that boy figured it out. He figured out how to do the best surprise, unbeknownst to me. Again, I thought that this was going to be happening, but later on, like six months to a year. And yeah, we were in Paris like one rainy evening. And um, we went back to our hotel room and we were sitting there drinking champagne. Like I was in like a robe <laughs> and it was the most casual, beautiful thing because he had just been waiting for this perfect moment. We had gone to this like elaborate meal with like, I don't know, 15 courses or something. It was crazy wow. the day before. And I was like, I joked with Andrew. I was like, you could propose here. If you ever were going to propose, we could come back. You could do it here. I, like, it could be like the 16th course. And he was like, hey, <laughs> but really like he, he was waiting for the moment. He yeah. didn't know when he was going to do it. He just wanted it to happen in Paris and he wanted it to happen in a way that was supernatural and organic and intimate and intimate and he pulls out this ring I say yes and we go downstairs at like I don't know midnight and we just drink all the champagne in like the little Parisian library mm -hmm. and like we told like the front desk attendant that we had just gotten engaged and he was like well, really? His name was Francois, which is the most French thing I've ever heard. Of course, of course, <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is perfect. Of course. And Francois took a picture and gave us all the stuff, and oh. it was really special. And then I had to go back to work. And then you had to go back to and work. And I didn't tell anybody. I told you, and I told um, Chloe, and I told— It took you a second to tell me, too. You were just—you were walking around on, on a cloud. You were I'm, walking around on a cloud, and, like, animated sparkles were coming out of literally, your cheeks. Literally, <laughs> I was a, a fairy, a Disney fairy. I was animated. She sparkles. was like, no, it was Hard fine. Paris was fine. I was like, fine. Paris was fine because I, I was like, <laughs> this was so, like, I probably made it for like three or four, four days right. before I told somebody because somebody directly asked, I think Amy in wardrobes was like, did you get engaged? I just feel like you got engaged. And I was like, yeah, I did. I'm yeah. so excited to finally acknowledge it. Um, and I told my family and I told like my best friends from home, but I also wanted to go back and focus on the work. Yeah. And not make it about that. I wanted to keep that. And I didn't, you know, I just wanted it to feel right when I did tell people. And it, ultimately it did. Every time I told somebody, it felt like the right time to tell them. How was planning the wedding and also shooting? It's, it was intense. I mean, we had the very best planners, but at the end of the day, you still have to be around to make a ton of decisions. There are a lot of decisions that you and only you and your groom can make. And obviously you, you weren't getting partner. married in Atlanta. So. No. Yeah. So it was like, Andrew's in New York. I'm in Atlanta. Planners are back home in St. Louis. And I'm super visual. 
So I'm the type of person who needs to see things, which makes planning a wedding that, you know, in a different city hard. Mm -hmm. Even though it was my home city, I knew the venues. I knew all of that, which was super easy and great. That's like, those are huge things that you can check off your list. But in terms of like florals and like color palette. Yeah. They could send some things via email, but I really wanted to go and like see the arrangements and like, I don't know if that color green is coming across my screen weirdly. I need mm. to go and see the different greens. Right, are, in the space. By the way, whatever, like, yeah. there are, like, a hundred different types of greens. And you're like, okay. Um, but, yeah. Good to know. And, like, obviously, ta- like, tastings and all of that. It's, like, there were things that I just, like, had to be there for. And right. it's, like, so obviously wanting to commit myself to those decisions. It's the biggest weekend of your life, right? For me, that's how I looked at it. It was the biggest weekend of my life and Andrew's life. And I just wanted it to be perfect. And it ended up, it was perfect. But there was that balancing act where it was like, I felt like I was juggling a million things, like trips to New York to be with Andrew and also trips back home to St. Louis and also memorizing lines and making (laughs) sure that I was, you know, bringing authenticity to Magnolia for season two and just all of those things. And And also probably like the occasional audition. Occasional audition and also the one-time self-care Sunday. (laughs) It's just like you want to be present in all these moments. So it's just hard. And it's also, I think, difficult because to me, like after I've been on set for five months, I don't wear makeup for months because it really does a number on your skin. So to protect your skin, to protect your hair, which is... For me, it was getting heat treated every day and, you know, your face and... I was getting facials every week. Um, Do you have any funny stories from the set you want to share? I feel like there were so many funny things that happened on set. I mean, you probably have a ton too. There was... Okay, so you know that little mascot dog, Pierre? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Finding Magnolia? From Five, It was like literally like the flashback. He like was the one who like licked my forehead while I was in the woods. And he was the one who licked me when we freed him from like the dog napper's room and that cage that he was keeping him in. For a little context, Erin doesn't like have a bunch of dogs I don't, around I'm, her. I don't, I don't, I'm not a dog She's person, I guess. She's not an animal guy, yeah. I guess. That being said, season one, she drove me and two orphan rescue kittens I to did. the veterinarian. Not because she loves kittens, but because she knew that this was the right thing It to was do. important for Debbie. And so I was like, I got a car, I can make this happen. But I literally, when she told me that they were like, she found them in this gutter. And then we like found out, did they have, like, what did they have? They had all sorts of things yeah, yeah, that yeah. They, they had challenges. Yeah. And I was like, they were in my car. Yeah. No, but they were, they were sweet. I just, I never grew up with animals other than my hamster Pearl um, and like an occasional ant farm or like butterfly house, if you can count those as pets. But I don't. with that said, <laughs> with that said, I did have this moment that I had to shoot. Like I had two moments that I had to shoot with Pierre and they consisted of him licking my face. And keep in mind, we're in like full glam. Right. So it's like you have foundation, you have primer, you have highlight. Like you already have like a heavy amount of things on top of your skin. This dog was not about to lick me in general. He just was like, I'm not licking this girl. Right. Like she's make like I, <laughs> I wasn't lickable apparently. And then his owners were there and they're like, put a little applesauce. He like kind of licked the applesauce, but not You're like, really. Put a little applesauce on what? I, they put it <laughs> literally, Debbie, and like I literally, I, I my eyes, I was like, um, hello, like where are we putting this? You were laying on the I, ground. I was laying in actual woods. Those weren't set woods. That, those were actual woods that they like cleared a little area for me to like lay in. And I was like, really? So I'm there. There are bugs around, and I'm like, okay, now I have applesauce on my forehead, and I'm in the midst of woods, and there are bugs. Let's get the shot. Like in my mind, I'm like, let's get the shot. Dog's not licking. He's not taking to the applesauce. And he's not even really taking to me. He just keeps like sort of meandering about. And we're like, applesauce on her head. Lick it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the shot, They wipe the applesauce off. Ketchup. Not responding to the ketchup. Jelly. 
Uh, and I talk, I'm talking like smuckers. Like I'm talking everything like with sugar in it. Sugar. Yeah. Sugar I think and the ketchup. Sugar and the he licked a little, but at that point, I mean, and they had wiped as much of it off as they could, but it was like, you have remnants of ketchup, jelly, like, you know, I think at one point there might've been peanut butter. Like there was just like a little medley on my forehead to incentivize him to lick me. And he, he, we got what we needed at that point, but then we had to do it again later in the day. Still same thing. And Brian was like, the director was like, hold him to your face. And I'm like, I've been taught not to look dogs straight in the eyes, especially when you don't know them. Mm-hmm. So I was nervous. I was like, if this dog mauls me, it's like, yeah, there goes your face. Onset of insatiable. Actress She's getting married in a mask. Literally. <laughs> so I was like, eventually I held him up. I like forced his like, like little nose into the area where the food was. And he finally like, we got like a couple of like, like, like licks. Unclear if it was like a wet nose or like, right. I don't know, <laughs> right. but we got the shot. And we I was just like, shot. all right, I'm done. I think we got it. But that was hilarious because like the, this dog was hired to literally do the one thing that he just wouldn't do. Couldn't he wasn't licking anybody. Remember. Yeah. So I was like not taking true offense, but I was like, he was not licking. It's not about you, but you were the one with an array with, of condiments on I your face. I did have condiments on my face. <laughs> yeah, 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 and I was yeah. like, what do you need? Yeah. I'm like, what can we get you? I don't even remember his name, but his his his, his stage name was Pierre. And it's like, Pierre, what do you need? <laughs> what are your asks? Where's his writer? We will I'm here to accommodate. Show up for you. <laughs> so that was just oh, hilarious. No. Now when I've seen like seen the shots, I'm like, people don't even know how hard it was to get those, no. to get those shots. Um, okay, so Aaron, Westbrook, in light of this conversation mm-hmm. today, what are you grateful for? I am still grateful to have a voice to inspire and hopefully evoke positive change. I'm grateful for people who are willing to listen. I'm grateful for moments of authenticity. I am grateful for platforms on which to engage with like-minded and also not like-minded individuals. I'm grateful for important conversation. So this conversation was really important. I hope it resonates with people. I think it will. And I'm grateful for all the things I mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I am really grateful. I think that I am always better for time with you and Mm -hmm. your perspective and your collective of life experiences. And it's really nice to be able to bounce it off of someone who's like thoughtful and can take you on the journey and make you feel heard, but still like yes and it Mm -hmm. and challenge that. Mm Mm-hmm. And the feeling is mutual. So yeah. grateful for this time. Thanks for coming Yay. In. Thanks for having me on There You Are Pod. Yes. Love you. Here we are. Love you. I am grateful for Aaron, for perspective, for people who are fearlessly self-identified. I know if I come to her and I say, I don't know about this thing. Can you explain it to me? She will meet me without judgment and open up the conversation so that I can know more about the thing. I think that's pretty important. And conversations about identity, stereotypes and prejudices, daily injustices, racial inequality. James Baldwin is quoted as saying, It is certain in any case that ignorance, allied with power, is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. It's a very, very important time for justice. And power can look like privilege or opportunity or comfort. And an awareness of intersectionality may upset your comfort, but it is a good time to swallow our fragility and listen to our neighbors. I love an article called A Call for Moral Courage in America that the Ford Foundation put out. You guys, I think transparency is a powerful tool for accountability. I think through respectful dialogue and recognition and affirmation of people and their experiences and frames of reference and 
connectedness to individual cultures, histories, practices, an understanding of intentions and a clarity of yours. And it'll bring about a sense of agency and awareness, responsibility. And then slowly with each conversation and each friendship and each way that we navigate the world, we can be very productive and we can lead with love and kindness and we can start to balance out some of these things that have been so historically wrong for so long. It's an important time. You guys can do anything. Go have an awesome conversation today. Love on someone. Really listen. See you soon.